Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So I have a pretty funny thing that I haven't told you yet. <laughs> There's not many of those going around. I know. It's because it happened literally yesterday. But um, I went to therapy and I was talking about how I get really upset about stupid things. And then I was like, okay, so there's this alter ego I have called... Her name is Pea Brain. <laughs> and then was talking to her about Pea Brain for ages. And then she was like being so serious about it. And she was like... Okay, um, so what age would we would we think pea brain is? <laughs> I, was like, hearing, I was like, hearing you talk about pea brain makes me want to die. What age is pea brain? Like two? And then I said 19 and she was like, um, pea brain is jumping around on the couch screaming, love me. Um, she really sounds like a child. I was like, oh. Maybe she's five. I love how we're giving the pea brain a characteristics, an age, a look. A look, yeah. Yeah, um, so pea brain is, me and Grace always talk about it on the pod, but we just joke about our tiny pea brains. But basically we always joke about how we have two separate personalities and one is our kind of smart work. Professional journalist. Life half the time and then half the time. Out of the woodwork yeah, occasionally yes. comes pea brain. <laughs> <laughs> Who's just a silly, silly little girl. Um, and jumps around and this she came up in therapy because I was um she came up telling in therapy. She came up in therapy <laughs> because I was telling my therapist, which I've already told you, Grace, and you were like laughing so hard you couldn't breathe, so it's probably good you're not hearing this for the first time. But um I was lying in bed the other night and I was being so clingy to my boyfriend and I go, I love you and he goes can you just say it a bit less? And I started crying. (laughs) (laughs) It's still funny the second time round. Yeah. And I was like, that's so pea brain because why do I say it all the time? And I'm not even thinking it. I'm literally, it's like my brain just goes on repeat mode. Yeah. I get in a, um, like a loop track where I keep saying the same things over and over or I make a really repetitive noise over and over again where I'll be like, I can't even think of an example. I just keep, I'll be like, I can't think of an example. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh my god don't you hum or something yeah i'll just like sing songs i'll be like da 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 i don't know like i'll just be so annoying on and, on and, and on. then it's just completely human for the person that's in your company to say stop doing that and then yeah. like a child i want to burst into tears because i feel rejected <laughs> it's an attention seeking thing it's you want attention you want feedback you want a constant feedback loop but i do it with the cat all the time as well i literally walk around and be like i love you to the cat and i'm like i love you i love you i love you i love you <laughs> You've met your match because he's also a pea brain, so he's just like responding. (laughs) The cat's just relaxing. Yeah, Izzy, I was FaceTiming you the other day and you just switched, you just kind of zoned out and then you just switched the camera around and you were just watching the cat just hit a ball up and down (laughs) a rail just over and over. It's a new Amazon toy. That's what the pea brain is, basically. Yeah, that's literally pea brain in action. Um, Anyway, I want to tell you about a film I watched, which also happened to win Best Something, Best Film at the Golden Globes, Nomadland, which still isn't out in the UK. I don't know what's up with our streaming providers, but I managed to download it. Wrangle it. Yes. So this is Chloe Zhao and it's Frances McDormand, right? And she's yeah in a trailer. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't I tell people and you? So she, it's a true story about this town in the US in the 2008 recession. It had a one big company basically that kept the whole town running. Like that was why anyone lived there, a big factory or something. And then that shut down in the recession and all these people were left homeless and the town just went off the map. Like it doesn't even exist anymore. Wow. Because everyone just left because it wasn't a thing. It's based off one of those people who lost their jobs in the recession and their husband died. So this is Frances McDormand and she just decides to move into a van and become a nomad. And so they just, there's heaps of nomads in America and they basically live in these vans and just drive around and travel around. And heaps of them are retired or have, yeah, like lost their jobs or lost their families and either choose to live on the road because they love the lifestyle or because they don't have homes and have no other option. The really incredible thing about the film was that Chloe Zhao in all of her films hires heaps of non-actors in the cast. So most of the nomads in the film are actual nomads. And this one guy called Bob Wells, in the film he holds these annual conventions where heaps of people, heaps of nomads come together and they sit around the campfire and get to know each other and kind of meet up and trade like van staff and trade tips, etc. In real life he does the exact same thing and in the film he tells this story, it's the only time I cried in the whole film, about his son dying and how he hasn't told anyone that before and I started crying and then I looked it up today and it's a true story mm. and he said that before the film he'd only told maybe 20 people about his son. Wow, that sounds amazing. I really want to watch that. Yeah, it's really good and I think Frances McDormand works so perfectly in it because she kind of feels like a nomad. You know how you know nothing about her and she doesn't really do any press and she's just this kind of mysterious woman who just pops into films and, like, absolutely cleans up in them. Yeah, and just so cool. Like the, um, what's that famous picture of her? She's in, like, the big Valentino dress and she has no makeup on and she's just pumping a dart at the Met Gala, I think. Yeah. Our yeah. queen. Yeah, she's amazing. And she... For three billboards when she won Best Actress, she did that speech being like, thanks so much, but why don't we just give this to some of the young 
people, I don't need this. And then for the Golden Globes, even though this film was nominated, she just didn't even open her laptop. So people think she won't win Best Actress, even though she her performance is incredible. She just doesn't want it. So it kind of opens it up to these younger, like Carrie Mulligan and everyone. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Go, Frances. I know, she's so cool. And then I actually recommended this last week, but I my phone went off and was making this really horrible, annoying noise, so we cut it. But a couple of weeks ago, I watched Adam Curtis's new documentary series called Can't Get You Out of My Head. It's eight parts, so it's eight hours long. And he is this British journalist, documentary filmmaker, who is, he works for the BBC, and all of his films are available on the BBC, and he's kind of like the only journalist who just gets free reign to do whatever he wants, because all his films are just very set in his own tone and doesn't even look like it's made by the BBC at all. He's constantly having a go at big corporations. And his last film, Hypernormalization, his last documentary, was really famous. And it basically, he just explores how we got to where we are now by going through history. And so he goes through all of the BBC archives and pulls up old footage. And then he edits the whole thing himself and does the voiceovers himself. He's like, just so incredible. And so this one is all about kind of how we've moved into this era of individualism. So basically people telling us that our own thoughts and our own opinions matter more than the community kind of thing. So everyone's just got this individual mindset and how that's sort of tearing us apart and how politicians are just not really telling us anything Mm. innovative anymore. Like all they're basically trying to do is keep things the same. So sort of how Barack Obama came in and made all these legislations and then Trump undid them and then Joe Biden's whole thing, his basic his whole thing was just everything's gonna be normal. It's just gonna return to normal. There's no big ideas and there's no big kind of thinking that there could be a different way of doing things. So it's it's like really interesting. Yeah, that's fascinating. I do think that's such a a thing now as well where we mm. our generation especially I think have been brought up with such a focus on there's something noble about pursuing what's best for you at all costs. Like we really think that we're being like how me and you have talked in the past before, where if you give, you know, 20 pounds to a homeless person, you'll leave that situation thinking you've been tricked or played or exploited or taken advantage of, which is just the most insane dynamic. Or if you do it, you feel you're doing it to get good karma for yourself. You're doing like a good deed. Yeah, it's just mm. so individually focused instead of you feel like you're not rewarded by society for being philanthropic or for putting yourself second or for putting your ambitions aside to like forward greater good. You're kind of seen as like a loser or a, I don't know. Or no one even thinks that anyone could think like that. It's become so uncommon for people to literally be selfless or to actually want to help without having ulterior motives that it doesn't even seem real anymore. It's it's like very interesting and Mm-hmm. as a tip for anyone who wants to watch it because it is quite intellectual and quite he jumps around a bit he jumps around a lot so in all of his different films he'll go to different countries to kind of show how what happens in say the middle east and what happens in new york at the exact same time can signal a whole change for the entire world and he jumps around between people a lot like he talks about tupac shakura's mom and how she's a black panther which i didn't know she's so incredible and then jumps around to this other amazing woman in china who she's she's like so fucking cool she basically just wanted to be the leader and so she married the leader of the communist or something she was like Mm. having an affair with the leader of the communist party and then they wanted her to join 
a specific group because they that's what they did back then and she was like absolutely not I just want to be myself and then um, her husband ends up throwing her in jail and she like escapes she's really badass but a hot tip is to put subtitles on if you're having trouble focusing like an ADHD girl is I always use subtitles Mm. yeah I I watch subtitles on every single thing I watch and I'm not sure why I I actually have quite bad hearing I'm like quite hard of hearing Mm. (laughs) so I need them yeah that's funny so I am listening to an audio book of uh, – it's a, like journalist's deep dive. His name's Dave Cullen into the Columbine shooting. It's called Columbine. Um, <laughs> of course. I don't know why. A b- bloody Jeff Bezos got me by the balls again with his three-for-two audible big sale, and I just bloody went for it. Got a whole library full of stuff now that I'll probably never listen I've to. Put Audible again. Onto yeah. Audible again, but um, yeah, this this book is really really interesting because it's it's basically about how the narrative. It's like a long episode of You're Wrong About because it's basically about how the narrative about Columbine is so at odds with what actually happened, but how this kind of story just got picked up and people have run with it, and even as more and more evidence came through that it wasn't true, the public still embraced it. I don't know if you think of this, but when I think of Columbine, I think of two kind of outcast weird kids that went to I don't to really go... know anything about it. Can you give me a brief overview? Oh, so it was the Columbine shooting in 1999. It was like the first big high school shooting right. in American history. And then Michael Moore made Bowling for Columbine, which is I think like 15-year-old me watched it and I was like, yeah, this is so badass. <laughs> like, I thought Michael Moore was so cool. Yes, but basically this was the first massive high school shooting and it's been taken as a kind of blueprint for all the other ones that have happened. But the idea around school shootings is often these two kind of loner, weird kids who want to get revenge on the jocks and the hot girls that rejected them in this kind of idea. Mm. And that started at Columbine. Right. But what actually happened was this one of the two kids was obsessed with bombs and like pyrotechnics and blowing shit up. And he tried to blow up the whole school, but the bombs didn't go off like they were supposed to. And they just bought guns to kind of defend themselves while they were trying to set this crazy bomb off and then panicked and started kind of shooting people. So it's this it's become this kind of myth in American history, but actually the truth of it's really different. That's so interesting. It's actually I'm trying to think I've been watching so much Adam Curtis that I can't figure out which documentary this was in. I'm pretty sure it's hypernormalization. They talk about how suicide bombing started and it actually started back in the 70s i'm pretty sure this is my memory coming to play when the u.s took military troops into syria right and the president wanted to get the u.s out so said that um because in muslim culture it was like not a thing to take your own life it was really bad and basically he said that he changed the narrative to say that it was like the ultimate sacrifice for the gods and how um, they used to whip themselves on their back with like foe whip themselves on their back so not actually hurt themselves to replicate the suffering. And he said, this is the ultimate form of sacrifice. So you're going to go straight to the heavens and just made this whole thing up. So these people, they were sending truckloads of kids out of school to go because they were and they would happily sacrifice themselves to suicide bomb to get the American troops out because they didn't want interference in the Middle East and then 
basically the thing that had started to keep the Middle East calm and to keep America out because basically America intervening is like the whole issue. It's why the whole place is screwed. Ended up just backfiring on them because then suicide bombing just took on a life of its own and became like a way of the Middle East fighting each other, which is really sad. It's so crazy how these things start with such a weird example and then they just get replicated over mm. and over until they become this cultural phenomenon. It's it's so nuts. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's so interesting. So that's so that's a really good book if you're interested in that kind of morbid thing. <laughs> and then I have been really uh, obsessing over the situation in Canberra as it's unfolding in Australia. Yeah. So we spoke about Brittany Higgins at length a couple of episodes ago and that's kind of ticked off what I think was like a ticking time bomb of the treatment of women in Canberra in politics in Australia. And a couple of days ago it was announced that there was a pretty serious rape allegation against a current cabinet minister who at the time was, it was anonymous who it was, and that she had since died by suicide since making the complaint, and her friends were rallying together to get justice for her. It was about an incident that had happened when both she and the minister were much younger. I straight away said I thought the allegation was going to be against Christian Porter, who's the attorney general, because Four Corners did a huge report back in, it was either November or December last year, called the Canberra Bubble, and it was about, like, a toxic culture, especially for young women in Canberra, and he was, like, the huge focus of it, really. And some of the things that they mentioned about him in that documentary came up in the report about this woman. So he came in, uh, quote-unquote, outed himself by saying the complaint's about me, but it's not true and I'm not stepping down. Oh, my God. Um, Fuck with. Two days ago. So he's um, now, like, fighting the charges yeah it's kind of madness but there's so much going on in australia right now so much going on but i think this will be the first i do think there'll be a big domino effect because louise milligan who if you guys aren't across her is just a fucking legend journalist in australia who's done so many things i think she broke the pearl story Mm. she rocks and she put in one of her stories that she's aware of another rape allegation against an actual politician in parliament house as well like Brittany higgins that she's not been able to publish yet but is like working on in the background amazing so i think there'll be more to come but yeah that that four corners documentary is really good it's just on youtube it's like an hour long was this the one that was taking place when Brittany was getting asked if she was okay yes yes that's the one yeah they were worried she was going to talk to them yeah for that oh my god this fucking hell it's just because we haven't worked in environments with any men really but older men when they're the bosses it's really startling to watch what it must be like to work in that environment where there's you know they'll all go to these kind of work benefits where everyone's dressed up and then go on to a pub afterwards and all of the older ministers are just making like really lecherous comments about the young girls mm-hmm. and what they're wearing and don't you look so beautiful tonight? And I just think like... I did work. My first job out of uni was at a place which is really... I don't really want to name it because... um, I just don't. 
But it was at a place which is kind of, it's like known for its young culture. It's known for its music culture. It's known for being like a party place. So every single mm-hmm. Friday night we would have after work drinks and it would be literally like a party. And all of these young girls, there were so many young girls, so many students who worked there who would come for these after work drinks with all of these old men who worked in like marketing and accounts and finance and sales and it's always the sa- always the sales guys are so fucking CD sorry but they are and all of these young <laughs> students at uni and I would I would wasn't even that much older than them I'd literally just finished uni and I was constantly having to like watch the room to make sure some weird shit wasn't going down but like even just things like my old boss would come in every day and be like you look so beautiful today or you look really pretty or I like that skirt or like touching on the arms, touching everywhere. Mm. Like I was just like, God, I'm going to go work at women's magazines. Goodbye. Goodbye. I'm out of here. But literally just, I, I just, the immediate dynamic shift that that does of making you realize that you're not being looked at for your performance or your work or the quality of what you're doing. I literally used to feel special. Like I didn't even think that was gross at all. And I still can't even figure out if that guy is gross or not because he, he's so nice and charming and makes you feel special. But he's also like an older married man being like, you look so beautiful this morning or you're gorgeous or aren't you like just really kind of out of line stuff. It's it's like really yeah, hard to Yeah, it is out of line. But like you say, you feel. I'm like, God, I am gorgeous. Good morning. You're like, it's just a fact. You know? <laughs> don't want to send him to jail for a bit of honesty. <laughs> Um, I have a Netflix show to recommend to anybody who hasn't seen it yet. I feel like I'm really behind the ball here, but this is like Pea Brain's fucking favorite show and it is called Indian Matchmaking. (laughs) And basically the super famous Indian matchmaker from Mumbai comes to America to match Indian Americans. She's like, I wish I was a matchmaker. That's such a fucking cool job. I want to say I'd be good at it, but I've never set up anyone before successfully. I've set up people. I'm really good. Have you? Yeah. And um, in India as well, they're super massive on... Obviously, arranged marriages is still a tradition in a lot of places. And they're also really massive on astrology and, like, full-blown, <sighs> like, biodata. So this, So it's kind of like married at first sight but actually properly good so they go through everyone's birth charts they go through everyone's bio data and then they have like basically cvs for each person and this woman matches them up and so she goes to the houses and meets the families and the families are really involved in indian households typically and so the the mum and the dad and and the grandparents and the sisters and the brothers all say what they want for their like the guy or the girl and then she goes out and finds them and then we go on the dates with them and it's just i was like this is the best show ever. And at the start of every episode, they have couples who were in arranged marriages like 40 years ago and love sitting on a couch talking about how in love they are. That's really nice. I actually have to say that the logic of that does make a lot of sense. Mm. As long as you're not literally forcing the people to marry the person you pick, you're just giving them the option of meeting each other. I think there's something quite like nice about coming together and having a very thoughtful idea about what you want your partner or what your family thinks you deserve in a partner. Yeah. Or what your family thinks you deserve in a partner 
that's quite kind of nice because it's the biggest decision of your life and so many people fall into just subpar, not great relationships and then just have no reason to leave, so stick it out. When you're young, you actually don't put that much thought into who you're choosing as a partner. You don't think about values and star signs and important lifelong things whereas your parents do have like probably a pretty good idea about what's important in a long-term relationship yeah and it's really cute because the matchmaker is just super blunt like she got this girl and she was like looks wise she's okay (laughs) and then um there's like this hot mumbai fuck boy who's just like from this really rich family and just doesn't want to settle down and he's so hot and I was like you just need to bring him a supermodel and he'll be happy and she keeps trying to pair him up with all these really cute innocent girls who have like never left their small town and she's flown them to Mumbai to meet him and he's like no and then finally she comes out with this model who travels the world modeling and he was like yes he's I was like, like I, I think we've found her <laughs> yeah <laughs> they have nothing in common okay I cute. can't wait to watch that show that sounds like a bomb for my soul. Oh, it's really good. I'm already up to episode six and I started yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> when is Love is Blind season two going to fucking come out? It's I actually was criminal. I making it 2 p.m. today. <laughs> Should we talk about the Golden Globes? Yes, let's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I kind of told myself I wouldn't watch it and I didn't watch it because of I was protesting against Michaela Cole being snubbed. But, you know. It is good you were protesting because the ratings were really, really bad. 6.9 million people watched it. And in 2020, 18.3 million people watched it. This is by far the least watched ceremony in Golden Globes history. See, that's what happens. So good you were protesting at work i kind of incidentally saw a bit of the fashion and it looked really nice i loved cynthia arrivo's big lime green valentino number i think that was the best dressed of the night yeah so good i of course and you of course were our dream girl obsessed with we don't even need to say it emma corin she's just heaven on a plate heaven on earth also that cute girl what's her name anna oh yeah anya taylor joy i love her too the queen's gambit i haven't watched that she has like powerful energy like there's something about her that i can't put my finger on where i just feel she's just she's just powerful she's very chic yeah and she just has because she's like half argentinian or something she's she's just cool Mm. yeah and then i love jane fonda so much so so much as if we needed another reason to love that fucking legend but in her did she win something i i like haven't i didn't watch it either but in a speech she did she talked about watching i may destroy you and small Mm acts and all of these incredible shows and movies really diverse shows and movies saying they taught her so much about black culture or just immigrant experiences etc and then she said that everyone in the room is storytellers, but there's a story that they've been afraid to see and afraid to hear about themselves in the industry. Ooh. And it's about who they allow to tell stories and who they don't and who's allowed in the room and who isn't. Jane, you little legend. She went for it. Yeah, she's so great. The confused elderly mem- white elderly white members of the Hollywood Foreign Press are like scratching their heads. They probably missed that it was a read. Yeah, and even like I was reading this piece Oh, I think it was actually the Atlantic one that you linked me, but it was a piece about how um, the winners were really great, which I think was literally because of the backlash. I honestly feel like they scrubbed the whiteboard and wrote full 
new winners lists after that LA Times article revealing that mm. none of the members are black. Yeah. Of the Hollywood Foreign Press. But anyway, they ended up giving really great people and really deserving people awards this year who did really great speeches and then kind of made the Golden Globes like by accident good more relevant than it would have been otherwise yeah good it was like good good in spite of itself basically yes yeah okay on to on to the big biscuit of news Harry and Meghan and Oprah and the palace and... Izzy, I can literally think of nothing else. No. My, like, my pea brain is in overdrive and all it's doing is thinking Megan, Oprah and Harry on a loop and has been since last week and will be until I see this yep. goddamn interview in full. I've never, ever, ever been so upset that we're not on US time. Even Australia is on, like, anywhere else in the world is in a better time zone than us. It's going to air at 3 a.m. London time on Monday morning. I'm considering staying up for it. I really am. I know. It couldn't be a worse time. Like, 2 a.m. and 4 a.m. would somehow be better because you could either stay up or get a bit of sleep. But 3 is just the nightmare. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so it's, it's really stressing me out because... We were going to have a virtual Zoom, a virtual Zoom watching party for this, which we still are going to obviously do. But it's just so shit not being able to watch it live. But then also it's airing on in the UK on Monday night at eight PM. So I feel like it's kind of cute to watch it at the same time as the UK because Twitter. I will know, be going but then there will be a whole day of the good bits. It's just it's infuriating. Yeah. It's fucked up. So I was a bit late for our phone call, partly because. We'd been re-watching the Harry James Corden interview. We'd been re-watching every single teaser clip from the upcoming Oprah interview. The things we do, things we do for love. And then I was, I was midway through the Harry and Meghan BBC engagement interview, and I was like, "Oh my god, the podcast recording started!" <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, their engagement. That's a really cute interview. The algorithm was really serving me the goods. My next thing on James Corden and Harry was just Harry Styles. I was like, stop it. Stop YouTube. it, you. Get me out of this rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like two hours late for the podcast because I'm watching Harry Styles. I also watched, um, again, by accident, Pierce Morgan go on a truly unhinged rant about this opera interview. I think you can obviously tell oh. that. Opera? Opera? <laughs> oh, my God. About the, the opera? A night at the opera. Um, the Oprah interview. And he was trying to say they were like Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-un because they, they don't want no media coverage. They only want only positive media coverage and that it's like a dictator, which is funny. And then he was like, I thought they wanted a private oh, life so going annoying. on an open-top bus with a camera crew. Not very private, is it? <laughs> I want to remind everyone that the reason he's a man scorned is because Megan like shot him down and then didn't invite him to the royal wedding, and now he's like come out having a go at her just because she didn't want to bus him. He's so disgusting, so unhinged, pretending there's no difference between wanting to drown out all negative coverage and not wanting a 24-hour constant racially motivated campaign against your wife is the same thing yeah so the oprah interview is airing i know all the details on cbs at 8 p.m in the usa and 
It's two hours long. They were originally going to cut it down, but now they've extended it to include the full interview, they reckon, which I know is just probably PR. Gail King, Oprah's best friend, said Oprah thinks this is the best oh. interview she's ever done. Oprah's so yeah. the cat that got the cream in this. I'm like, fuck off, Oprah. How did you do this? She literally like would have moved to Montecito to like be their neighbors and drop them off fresh berries every day for a year. She's been working on this since... <laughs> like Megan was born. She has this is it's the perfect coming together. The trailer was phenomenal. It looked like the trailer for Titanic the sequel. Were you silent or were you silenced? <laughs> I was like, shut up, Oprah. And just these close ups on Megan's face. I've been watching Breaking Bad recently and the first thing that came to mind was like the shots of Skylar White when she's just looking stressed and scorned and sad and the, those close-ups were so similar. It felt like something out of a TV show. They've really like hammed it up. Oh my God, it's going to be so good. So a new trailer actually came out today and so in the first trailer, Megan didn't speak. She just looked Who is her facialist? And close to tears. Tell me. And in this new one. I've never seen a distressed woman look so fresh. Like I, I know. know she's wealthy, but there's something else at play. She's so gorgeous. So Oprah said, how's the palace? How do you think the palace will feel? And Megan said, I don't know how they could expect that after all of this time, we would still just be silent if there's an active role the firm is playing in perpetuating falsehoods about us. Wow. Oh, my God. I was, like, about to fucking throw my computer out the window. I was like, this is crazy. I remember talking to my mum years ago about the Panorama Princess Diana interview. And she just said it was just the biggest thing. Like, everyone just stopped what they were doing to watch it. It played at all the pubs. Wherever you were, you sat down to watch it. And I just thought, I am so jealous that you lived through that moment where you got to see it for the first time as it was happening. And now we're getting our own version of that. Mm. it's madness we're so lucky (laughs) but also how now the palace has come out with this bloody report so the times did a report which was released earlier this week claiming that a staff member who worked at buckingham palace while megan was there one of her staff was bullied out and the times released this thing and then buckingham palace has put out a statement saying they're investigating it i was like where was this energy where was the same energy when Prince Andrew was accused of sleeping with a teenager. Yeah, yeah, agreed. And also, where was this energy two years ago when the stories first came out that Megan was bullying? That These stories were around for ages. Yeah, these bullying complaints, I mean, it seems incredibly obvious that it's like a preemptive strike from the palace because they're, it's such a guilty person thing to do. It's just... <laughs> It seems like such a preemptive strike because they know bad stuff is going to come out in this interview. It's also so wild that the fucking palace and their own family would do something like this. But I guess it just shows how crazy this institution is. I think it's hard as well because you talk about the palace and you you don't even know who you're talking about. And I think this will be touched on in the interview because Harry and Meghan are obviously close as we saw in the James Corden interview, which we'll touch on in a moment. Harry and Meghan are obviously still pretty close with the Queen. Um, I don't think that when they're talking about the firm, they mean the Queen. It's obviously that there's some sort of network of these press secretaries and staffers and people who work in this institution and have for years and years and years and years who are 
doing all of this stuff in the background at the same time. So it's so difficult when you hear this stuff about Megan and Harry being vilified because you think, should I be angry at Charles and Camilla? Should I be angry at Kate and, and William? Should I be angry at the Queen? Who's doing any of this stuff? What does any of it even mean? Who has the power? Who's signing off on things? I don't know. After watching The Crown, I'm going to go as far as to say it's Prince Philip doing it from his hospital bed. <laughs> on his deathbed? Yeah. <laughs> release the bullying report he like just taps out a a request yeah oh and then it was that uncle but he he's long gone yeah i do think like this might be an unpopular opinion but we live in a time where people are very highly attuned to exploitation of power and treatment of workers and privilege and wealth and i think that if there genuinely are several reports of staff members on the record to a very reputable newspaper saying that they were severely bullied by Meghan Markle and that several were bullied out of their jobs, that the palace kind of has to take it seriously and has to launch an internal investigation, you know? It's like they can't not do that, Mm. but the timing is just so suspicious that... Why didn't they launch an investigation into Andrew? I mean, they kind of just got rid of him, didn't they? They just booted him out. Yeah, I guess not really. (laughs) It just all feels a bit, like, sad, I guess. I'm very interested to see, obviously. I'm bloody thrilled to see <laughs> this uh, this sort of slow-moving disaster. Me too. I feel like for Megan and Harry to invite all of this thing, what they're saying has got to be pretty bad, right? Yeah, well, I guess they, they wouldn't know what they're going to say. But also, sorry, on I forgot to say... On Dumois this morning, I don't know if you saw this, but a person emailed in anonymously saying that they worked with one of the people who left when Meg was at the palace. So one of the people that's potentially spreading this bullying stuff and that the person had lied about their skills to get the position. They were fired from this workplace, like this girl's workplace. But in the UK, it's weirdly illegal to give a bad (laughs) reference, a bad job (laughs) reference. So they gave the palace just, they they were just like, yeah, she worked here. Yeah, that's like correct. Yeah, and then the person obviously couldn't do the job, like plan a whole royal wedding. And so Megan was probably like, dude. I personally very much struggle to believe that Megan has been doing despicable acts behind the scenes that they somehow haven't made it specifically into the papers. It seems that seems pretty beyond belief. Yeah. We don't know the woman. We know like nothing about her, but from... Everything that is known about her, the idea that she was bullying staff out seems ludicrous to me, but I guess the palace obviously has to take that kind of thing seriously. But I remember ages ago, there were reports about her being difficult. And then the reports were that she like was really full on with staff because she really wanted to make a difference. So she'd be like, okay, what are we getting done today? What charities are we talking to? What initiatives are we going to do? Like... I really want to work with this charity. I want to do this. I want to do that. And she was like super full on and super intense. And they were like, this isn't how it's done here because we're the monarchy and everything takes a thousand trillion years and there's all these protocols. With a monarchy and also like British bureaucracy is just famously just a slow moving mess. Yeah. So many people that we know who work in office jobs here who've come from somewhere outside of the UK have just said like the frustration of how slow things move is one of the biggest adjustments to make. 
to the UK. There's so many meetings and conversations where things go on and on and on and nothing is decided or people are too polite or scared to stand up and be like, why don't we just do it this way? Or that's not going to work. Like it's very buttoned up, polite, bureaucratic. So I can see how that mixed with Mm. like a go-getting Cali girl might not have worked. I definitely don't think she's a bully. Yeah. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Okay, so Harry on James Corden, which was the weird, unexpected news of that day that was so random, like right before the Oprah interview for him to just pop up on YouTube on a double-decker bus with James Corden. Yeah. I'm really curious who's doing their PR strategy because it's obviously all planned out, like the pregnancy announcement and the James Corden and the Oprah, but it all still feels a bit odd. Yeah, it feels really weird. So... Me and you wrote separate notes about this because we had so many messages from people asking if we'd cover it and we haven't seen each other's notes. So um, should we just read one out each? Okay. I might go first because mine's a thing. I said, preemptively telling Izzy that James Corden is actually a massive thing in the UK and it's not that random. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was like, okay. Harry, when he goes English tea on the 405, that'd be cool. I was like, don't. He's such a muffin. He really is. I do feel like there was one moment where he said something when they were on the obstacle course and he was being kind of funny. And I thought that was the one glimpse into what he's probably like behind the scenes. And the rest of it is obviously very, like, put on. Yeah, I thought that too because he really kind of, after you do something like that, you're exhilarated. His pea brain was out. He was exhilarated. He was having fun. It was pea brain Prince Harry. We saw his pea brain. He made a joke to James Corden. I can't remember what it was that was genuinely kind of funny. And I was like, okay, this is him being himself. Mine are pretty simple. I said, Harry is cute and slightly awkward. I like him. It's weird seeing him on the freeway, which I think is really jarring to see him. (laughs) (laughs) Anyone looking for a new culture critic slash reviewer? Vegan looks radiant. And then I said SponCon for Netflix, question mark, because they mentioned Netflix at least four or five separate times. Yes. True. I literally think they agreed to certain public performances as part of their super expensive Netflix deal, which is sad. (laughs) That's naughty. I wrote 
that family is so cute. A real prince, a real prince. I can't believe Harry went into their house and had like a bathroom break. I was like, don't Harry, that's weird. Even if you have a COVID test, they might have COVID and then you're just spreading it around, you freak. Yeah. Him wrapping Fresh Prince, I just couldn't deal with that. Maybe want to slam my laptop shut. And then him peering out oh. of the bathroom window. <laughs> and then her being called Emma. I was like, what are you doing? And then her, and then his joke, he was just like, he peered out the bathroom window and was like, if I don't come out in 20 minutes, come and get me. I was like, I don't even know what you're trying to say here. Are you trying to say that family kidnapped you? Yeah, I feel like the writers could have maybe fed him a better line for that part. I like that she's called Em on his phone. I like that Megan calls him Has. His grandmother, the Queen, asked what he wanted for Christmas. It's like the the royal families are an extension of supermodels. You know how just pretty models think they're really interesting and funny, but they're just really boring. And how he's like, um, his grandmother asked what he wanted for Christmas, and we said a waffle maker. So she sent him a waffle maker, and then James Corden was like, no. Yeah, James Corden really did try his darndest to, like, turn those those completely banal anecdotes into something funny. And then Harry, I wrote, Harry in that track pants and sneakers outfit looks so hot and, like, a bit of a fuck boy. Is he? When he climbed that rope, I just lost my mind. Just something came over me. Him in track pants and sneakers, I was like, Harry, wear that more often. Agreed. He's so fit. That's how I feel yeah. after doing two weeks of Joe Wicks. Yeah, Harry being like, come on, come on, let's go to James Corden made me laugh so hard. And then James Corden was like, you're talking to me like I'm a dog? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he literally was. Like, I thought that before. I thought that before James Corden said it. I was like, why are you being so condescending to the fat man? Just let him run by himself. It's good that they were mates because I think if it was anyone else, they'd really not know how to deal with him. Like, it's obvious they'd hung out before. Yeah. And then James Corden on the obstacle course is me trying to do a 20-minute hit session. Yeah. And then I wrote in caps, the new trailer, Oprah's so fucking smug, has her hand on her chin. Yeah, Oprah's thrilled. Oprah's thrilled. What did you make of Harry? I have to say I I did feel for him when he was kind of like floundering, talking about what he puts on his waffles. I found that very like tense and uncomfortable. <laughs> He was like, Meg makes waffles, and I don't know, tell me if I'm doing this wrong, but I put a uh, bit of yogurt, bit of jam, bit of maple syrup. Yeah, jade. I don't know, I don't know, shoot me if I'm doing this wrong. And I was like, what is this story? Like, would you not practice something? Would you not have something in the bank to tell? But maybe it's nice that he didn't. Yeah, he's such a cute little man. He can't believe he got Meg. Meg looked so luminous on the FaceTime chat. I know. Anyway, so yeah. That's what's happening in Royal Land. Tell me why Taylor Swift has um, done something wrong again. I can see that in the doc. Oh, yeah. I just – she tweeted about a show on Netflix that had some throwaway line about saying, you go through men faster than Taylor Swift. And then Taylor Swift said, this is sexist. Shame on you at Netflix. And I just kind of rolled my eyes at the whole thing. I find it odd when celebrities that are so powerful think that they're, like, punching up when they're talking about a niche show made by two unfamous women who have now been, like, mercilessly trolled on Twitter by Taylor Swift fans. Yeah, that's so true. I just think it's very, like, lazy feminism where you're obviously just personally offended by something that's bothered you 
And so you're making a quick and easy, I don't know, I'm like very cynical about this stuff, so sorry if I sound overly negative. I just, the thing that irks me about the Taylor Swift brand of feminism, which we've talked about in this podcast before, is that it's just safe to the point of being so banal, where she's not saying any, she's saying something that was a thing that went viral on Twitter six or seven years ago. You know what I mean? And I'm just Mm. like... Mm. just get over it you're one of the most powerful women in entertainment what is the point of this i just i don't think it's empowering i think it's interesting because when i read that just looked at it on the surface and was like i I honestly didn't really look too much into it but i read what she wrote and i was like yeah those jokes are a bit past it now and maybe it is worth someone pulling it up and someone famous so that other people don't make those jokes anymore. That's like the one thing I can see that's positive about it. But then she called out Netflix being like, after Miss Americana, this doesn't look great on you, Netflix. And it's like, in your context, when you're saying it's two young women writing a show that they've managed to get on Netflix who are now getting trolled, it's like taking it away from the company and into the actual people it's affecting is a different, interesting take. It's like the marketplace of ideas concept. Right? Like, it's like, just, that's not funny. That joke is just objectively not funny. It wasn't funny six years ago and it's not funny now. Not even for questions of sexism. It just, it's just not, it's so stale. It's like beyond the pale. (laughs) Just let those people not be successful because they're not writing funny material. You know what I mean? I just think it just seems like something you should have just let play out in and of itself. It just, it seems like someone who was upset at a joke at their expense, which is fine, But this is the thing that always bothers me about Taylor Swift. I feel like she acts as if she doesn't have the power that she has. Hmm. She has so much power. She's probably among the top three or four most powerful entertainers on planet Earth. And she's constantly acting like the whole world is, like, out to get her and tear her down. And she's this poor little, like, person who's up against, you know. Obviously, there has been sexism in regards to her. Like, absolutely. I just think this is, like, a very unusual take. (laughs) Mm. I'm definitely airing some old beef while I'm saying that. Yeah, you're going to get us cancelled. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> the sword I will die on. <laughs> I know. When some, when one person listened to our, like, the only episode that ever listened to us, two of ours, and we were both like, I don't know if Emirates feminism is actually empowering. <laughs> and they were like, you fucking anti-feminist bitches. <laughs> fucking bitches. <laughs> anyway. It's good. We trust you all to, as incredibly intelligent women as we know you are to be able to unpack complicated social issues without assuming that it means hate Taylor Swift or cancel Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift has done lots of amazing, cool stuff. She's great. We can criticize something she does. We're all adults. <laughs> so for the past two weeks, we have been really getting into like prime hacker ter- territory with these Woody Allen vs. Farrow documentary episodes where we've been like getting them the same time as the US at the moment and giving our Macs like yep. all of the viruses. Frantically refreshing. Yeah, frantically refreshing. <laughs> um, so basically it's a new four-part HBO documentary series about the Woody Allen vs. Mia Farrow 1992 case in which Mia Farrow, who was Woody Allen's longtime partner and collaborator, accused him of sexually assaulting her then seven-year-old daughter, Dylan Farrow. So the documentary has been created in collaboration with Mia Farrow and Dylan Farrow, and they feature a lot in 
the first two episodes, which are the only ones that are out so far, lots of kind of home videos of Mia, lots of showing the kids when they're really young, lots of ominous music across any time Woody Allen appears on screen. (laughs) What do you think, Grace? Yes. So I was talking to you about this because I had a period in like 2012, I think, where I can't remember if I told you about this. I lived in KL, Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia for like two and a half months. No, I didn't know this. Yeah, I worked at a newspaper. <laughs> I didn't know this at all. This is like my Scotland time. Yeah, it's like your Scotland time. I, I lived in Malaysia and I worked at a newspaper. But just. But you also lived in LA and did uni there. Yeah, but these were all short stints, like mm-hmm. a few month long stints. But yeah, basically I got this kind of scholarship thing to do it through uni and then they gave me a stipend to live off and then I spent it all in Europe before I got to Malaysia so I had no money yeah (laughs) I had to live in this weird Airbnb with hundreds of other people and I had no money to do anything so I spent all my time when I wasn't working just at home in my room and I got on this Woody Allen Mia Farrow tear and I, I don't know I just got into this black hole where I read everything like read every court document read watched every youtube interview watched every documentary that existed read every profile and so when i watched this documentary i was really excited because i assumed that there would be more or new information and there kind of is but it's so biased yeah that it's kind of difficult to watch with any sense of like i feel like it just discredits itself to the point where you almost it's difficult to talk about it. <laughs> I think what's interesting about it, what is what we were saying off air, is that if you didn't know much about the case, you know a lot more than me, but I still know enough. If you didn't know anything about the case, you would come into this not realizing this is biased mm-hmm. because it's supposed to be like... It's HBO, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's an HBO documentary. You think that it has to be fair and you think that it has to include all of the facts, but it just doesn't and I'm coming out and saying like full hog I believe Dylan that this happened and Mia saying it happened but it's also like the way that this documentary goes about things emitting like actually quite essential facts they include a bit in the second episode because basically what I thought had happened was that Mia Farrow and Woody Allen had broken up because he was having an affair with her daughter her adopted daughter Sunyi And she found out about it, which is what happened. But what I thought was going on was they were in the middle of this really intense custody battle. And in one of these like supervised visits was the first time that he ever assaulted Dylan or ever ever allegedly assaulted Dylan. But this documentary paints it in a completely different light. And it does like help me understand it more. So basically... Mia and her friends were out at the store. Woody Allen came to visit and there were babysitters there. And the babysitters had been advised not to let Woody Allen be alone with Dylan because of his weird behavior towards her. He was in therapy because of it. She was in therapy because of it. So that's like a known fact. But they say that these babysitters like corroborate the claims. Like the whole document, the whole second episode is so damning that I was like, how on earth could this ever be not thought of as fact like this is just so Mm -hmm. obvious what's happened here during the documentary there's like three adults that were at the house at the same time a french tutor mia's babysitter and then a friend's babysitter because the friend's kids were playing and the documentary all three of them say 
Woody Allen disappeared with Dylan for a while. Another one said she literally saw him with his head between her lap. It's like so damning. I was like, how on earth is anyone ever questioning this? Mm-hmm. And then you come out of the documentary and there's the babysitter said that Mia forced her to say that and that didn't even happen. And I was like, why can't that you have to include that? You have to include that. Exactly. And that's, uh, for example, Moses Farrow who is another of Mia Farrow's children, has come out and said on the record multiple times that after Woody Allen and Sunni Previn's relationship came out, and this is so fair enough that Mia was quite frantic and hysterical and was constantly asking all of the children if he'd ever done anything to them in a sexual way and that she was pestering the kids to say on the record or on camera that he had assaulted them. Whether or not uh, Moses Farrow's account is true. Yeah, I have like, I have like weird, I just think Moses Farrow's doing it because Woody Allen adopted him and he gets all the money. Well, yeah, Moses Farrow is close with Woody Allen and you could very easily make the argument that Woody Allen has manipulated his son into seeing his perspective and being against the mother. But you need to have that in a documentary and you need to treat the audience as being intelligent enough to make up decisions and take conclusions for themselves. It's like the documentary makers don't trust you to be able to sit with uncomfortable, contradictory information and still make up your own mind. It's like they're sanitizing the story to the point where anything that makes anyone in Mia Farrow's family look in any way negative is omitted to strengthen the story, but it just weakens the story because you're not getting the full picture and then so you can't trust so much of the evidence that's presented that is actually damning. Like, that's what really bothers me about it. It just feels like such a missed opportunity. Well, it becomes like propaganda. It literally, it, it's literally in a similar vein to that dodgy YouTube thing I watched alleging that the palace killed Princess Diana and Dodie. <laughs> Directed by Lily Allen's dad. Yes. And the director's previous work includes The Invisible War, which is an expose of sexual assault in the military. I've seen that. Yeah, it's really good. And The Hunting Ground, which addressed sexual assault on campus. And in that documentary, they were accused of putting advocacy ahead of accuracy because they used discredited data to prove their point. Doesn't it just bother you because you're just like campus sexual assault is just without putting in discredited data is enough of a story on its own. Like, why can't you just let the facts speak for themselves because the facts are on their own damaging enough? It's like you don't trust your own story. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I guess that's kind of, like, sad to show where society still is because, I mean, it's such a complicated and confusing story and that's why it's gripped the masses for so long. Mm. But, like, I just think the whole thing, which is what – Dylan and everyone say like no matter how that's yeah that's the thing like Mia Farrow obviously was a bit of a like chaotic parent um to say the least yeah like there's been accusations of her being abusive and they don't include any of that at all and it's annoying because exactly like you said you should be able to trust us to understand that she could be abusive and at the same time Woody Allen could have been a pedophile. The thing that bothers me is that these things could actually be used in their favour. Like, if you're trying to argue that Woody Allen groomed Sunyi Previn from childhood and that their relationship can never be seen as a legitimate marriage because the power imbalance was so off that it can't be anything but grooming. The idea that Mia Farrow was a not particularly good parent who was in over her head with 14 adopted children and was treating 
you know, so Mia Farrow adopted 10 children from countries outside the US, mainly Korea and Vietnam, and a lot of them had mental or physical health problems. Um, So she was obviously very overwhelmed. That's actually really compelling evidence against Woody Allen because it's showing that he was grooming someone that had a really bad, like, set up at home with their parent, right? It's like Mm. you're showcasing flaws in Mia Farrow as a person, but the ultimate end of that is to showcase how much more vulnerable this child was. But instead of doing that, they're like cutting off their own argument because they don't want to offend the person whose story they're telling. And also who's obviously given them access to all of these videos. The only new thing in the documentary is really are these videotapes which are obviously owned by her. So she's given them access to them. So she probably has a say in what they include. And she's like, no, 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 don't include how on Valentine's Day I sent Woody Allen a card of all my children's faces with pins through them and said, you'll never see your kid again. It's like people know that. You have to include it to talk about it and explain it. You have to include it and let them talk about it. I think of that as well with the Mia Farrow thing, how she was like a huge supporter of Roman Polanski for years. And flew out to appear as a character witness for him in a case, like, recently. Including that doesn't mean that Woody Allen can't have done the things he's accused of, but she could then give insight into how it's really difficult to cut ties with someone who you care about as a person and who you respect as an artist when they're accused of doing something awful. And also who, like, clearly had kind of a semi-abusive relationship with her like he literally Mm -hmm. made her feel so shit that she didn't think she could get movies on her own made her cut off her own agent made her like a shell of herself all her friends are saying things i didn't know which because i've never watched any of his films are that all of his films basically are about an older man with a much much younger girl so like manhattan which is anyone who's seen it will know but his most famous film depicts a relationship between a 46 year old man and a 17 year old girl so it's like people are saying in this documentary which i found an interesting kind of like story or take is that he used his films to make audiences feel better about these age gaps because he was so interested in young girls and then there was another allegation that he was sleeping with a teenage girl she talks in the documentary when he was with Mia and when he was 46 and when he was making Manhattan I I definitely think there's room to like analyze and criticize the way that was always the dynamic in his movies but I think the thing about it that bothers me is that they're framing they kind of frame Manhattan as this super creepy, fucked up, weird thing when it was the most popular mainstream movie of the year. It won a bunch of Oscars. He was critically lauded. No one in a single review of the movie at the time criticised that portrayal. I'm not saying that makes it right, but I just think that the view towards age gaps in relationships at the time he was making a lot of this stuff was like a lot more loose. And it, it bothered me how... They're doing all this stuff about how creepy and weird it is that Woody Allen's fixated on relationships with age gaps and being an older man that's interested in teenage girls or younger girls. And then they talk about Mia Farrow's first husband, who's Frank Sinatra, who she met when she was 19 and he was 49 and married when she was 20 and he was 51. Like, I just, (laughs) I'm not, again, that doesn't mean Woody Allen didn't do anything wrong or that Manhattan isn't fucking creepy. I just think the documentary just doesn't show that there was a cultural context but that was like very much accepted and that allowed Woody Allen 
to hide in plain sight, basically. It makes it out like he invented this dynamic, which is just ridiculous. Mm. And it's like you had everyone cheering on Florence Pugh uh, this time last year for saying, I can go out with whoever I want. I'm 24 and my boyfriend's 45 and it's fine. And everyone was like, yeah, feminist. And I'm just like... (laughs) I think that's a bit different. It's obviously different, like... I don't know. I just feel like people try to act like big age gaps are just always exploitative or always bad or always evil and just try to simplify this issue down. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. I feel like it's quite different, though, when it's like a teenage girl at high school or like a teenage girl compared to a 24-year-old. And I still think like 24 and whatever is, is a lot when it comes to experience and like the fact that he's super famous and successful. But yeah, I don't know. Anyway. I should just clarify what I was saying there. I don't, I don't mean the Manhattan, like, 17-year-old, 40-year-old thing. They threw in, like, a lot of examples in that documentary of movies of Woody Allen's in which a woman is 30 and he's 50 or a woman is, like, 20 and he's 40 or a woman is 40 and he's 60. Like, they basically showcased this obsession with younger women and older men and acted as if any dynamic in which there's a drastic age gap is the same as the dynamic in which someone is a child in high school and someone who is in their 40s. Yeah, right. And that's the thing that bothered me. Yeah. I, I don't think a, a grown man going out with a girl in high school is acceptable. <laughs> <laughs> you after Taylor Swift. This is going to be an explosive episode. <laughs> okay, let's end with the fact that Hilaria Baldwin just had two kids in five months. What is up with that? How many kids do they have? Um, So many. I think it's six now. Too many. So she gave birth five months ago to a son and then the other day on Instagram just randomly posted a photo with a newborn baby (laughs) and thought no one would think that was weird. And then everyone was like, what the fuck is going on? And Alec Baldwin started jumping into her comments to tell people to shut the fuck up. I was like, what are you guys on about? And her caption said seven and everyone was like, wait, what's seven? Because if you had another baby, that's eight. Or if it's just the kids, that's six. <laughs> oh, what? Like they had five kids, so so seven would be all of them <laughs> or eight would be the parents and the six kids. That is so funny. So then the rumour or like the kind of – thing everyone thinks that's happened is that she at four months went in to find out the gender found out it was another boy she only has boys and just got a surrogate immediately to have a girl which is like quite a hilarious and understandable (laughs) move i guess hilarious thing to do yeah 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 she's like such a strange person yeah (laughs) I feel like she was all excited to unveil that and then this scandal happened and then she was like, God, what happens when my baby arrives? Oh, yeah. Consider the source. Consider the source. Consider the source. And then also the only other funny thing that happened is Army Hammer isn't someone to laugh about, but he tried to quietly move out of his house in the middle of the night. Like, apparently movers were, like, pulled up in their vans in the middle of the night and were using torches so no one would see that he was moving out of his house. But then the movers left a bound-up mannequin popping out of the bin. As a joke? No, just because he would have had a bound-up mannequin in his house because he's a fucking sicko. And the movers, like, just didn't consider what they were doing and left that popping out of the bin, just like... 
when Ben Affleck and Anna de Armas broke up and there was a huge cutout of her sticking out of his bin. What the fuck? Who are these movers? Like, he literally got them to come in the middle of the night so that no one would know he was moving house. I love them. Someone needs to give them a fucking medal. Yeah, I just think that the... (laughs) I'm just looking at the picture of it. It's just... um, It looks like that Kim Kardashian perfume bottle. Yeah. Yeah, I just find it mad that there was no PR person looking for how the scene looked afterwards. So, so wild. Well, I think it would have been like first thing in the morning photographers would have arrived. Why did he have that? I mean, it doesn't look... It doesn't strictly look like a kind of sex toy, but it's got all these weird kind of ropes on it. It probably was. Like, the bottom probably was. It's probably literally like a doll that you fuck. Oh, why would he... Oh, God, why is he such a freak? But that's so funny that it was like, oh, my God. These movers need to be fired. But I love them. Yeah, I love them too. Okay, bye. Okay, bye, everyone. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.